I definitely do think that that Wall Street is going to change as a result of this, but I don't think it's an easy populist story. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. So this week's episode was going to be about something completely different. It was going to be on religion and technology. And that conversation will come to you in the next couple of weeks. But we decided to pivot because sometime last week, this happened. Markets have been captivated since late last week with the phenomenon that is GameStop and the battle between short sellers and a group posting on Reddit with the stock shooting up and fluctuating wildly. GameStop shares have now risen some 700% We are seeing a phenomenon uh, that I have uh, never seen. There's nothing normal about what you're seeing when it comes to this stock right now. If your news feeds look anything like mine, you've probably been hearing a lot about GameStop over the past few weeks. In case you haven't, here's the gist. Essentially, there's a video game retailer called GameStop that's in almost every mall in America. But lately, business hasn't been booming partly because you can download video games directly off the internet now, and partly, of course, because nobody really wants to go to the mall in the middle of a pandemic. So a bunch of Wall Street hedge funds tried shorting GameStop, which means they made a big bet on its stock going down. All of this is par for the course. But then it got interesting. A bunch of retail investors got together on a Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets, And they decided that if enough of them bought shares in GameStop, they could drive up the price of the stock. This is called a short squeeze, because you're squeezing the players who are doing the shorting. The more the stock goes up, the more money the shorters, in this case the hedge funds, lose. And somewhat remarkably, this actually seemed to work. Chaos continues on Wall Street as hedge fund titans lose billions to Reddit traders running amok. Melvin's suffering losses upwards of 30% in a year through last Friday, a source told me. And it's my understanding that the PL looked very grim before Citadel and Point72 gave Melvin a $2.75 billion cash infusion on Monday. The story is a lot more complicated than that. But for now, that should give you a sense of what's going on here. Now, when I was first thinking of interviewing someone for this, I thought I would talk to an economist or a financial journalist, someone who could walk me through this story beat by beat. But over the last week, it seems like we've been inundated with these types of explainers. Given how quickly this became saturated, I decided I wanted to talk to someone with a very different perspective on all of this. I wanted to talk to Lana Swartz. Lana is the author of a book called New Money, about the ways in which digital technologies like Bitcoin are reshaping finance. Lana is a professor of media studies, so she brings a really unique perspective to all of this. Because while this is undoubtedly a story about finance, it's also a story about social media, about populism, and about Silicon Valley. The dominant narrative that has emerged around this is that of the Davids of Reddit conquering the Goliaths of Wall Street. Lana doesn't really buy that, but she does think it's an important moment for a variety of other reasons. It's an opportunity to take stock of our financial system as it currently exists, to think about who it's working for and against. It's a moment to look at the design of these new fintech platforms and how they are shaping our economy. 
and it's a moment that has the potential to really democratize finance. But 20 years ago, we thought the internet had the potential to be a truly democratizing force as well, and that never really came to fruition. Maybe this time we can get it right. Here's Lana Swartz. I want to just start with sort of a, your broad sense of what happened and uh, how you understand what happened. I mean, what, what's what's your context for thinking about last week? Yeah, so you know, I was I was listening to another podcast um, that was trying to uh, uh, you know do an explainer and kind of mm-hmm. think through what has happened, and at the end they did a little like take-a-thon where they just listed out all the takes. They're like, there's this take, there's that take, there's this take. And they kind of commented on each one. And and the, the, the takes were pretty varied and about a lot of different things. And so as a as a scholar, as, as kind of a, soci- a sociocultural scholar of communication technologies and particularly money technologies, I think that this is a really interesting moment, um, you know, to explore a lot of different issues. So, you know, I don't, I hope, I don't think that, you know, don't, don't hold me to account to this, but I don't think we're going to necessarily see some major financial meltdown of systemic proportions mm. in the next month or so. Um, and that might be cause for some people to kind of dismiss this story and kind of act mm. like it went away. Um, but I do think, you know, even so, even after the news cycle has moved on, mm. this has kind of brought up a lot of really important issues that I think you know, are worth paying attention to. It's one of those yeah. moments of, you know, infrastructural uh, scholars like myself mm. like to talk about infrastructural inversions. So mm. this idea when suddenly something stops working and you realize all the things that went into making it work um, in the first place. So mm. this thing that you never noticed before and then suddenly... Becomes visible, right? Exactly, and, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a bit about how you got into this topic and what mm-hmm. you've been working on really for the last decade leading up to this moment. Um, So you're a professor of media studies, but you spent the better part of your career looking at cryptocurrencies and sort of broad forms of financial payment and what you call new money. Um, Mm -hmm. So how did you get into that? So I was in grad school, um, really in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. So this moment when suddenly lots and lots and lots of people became popularly interested in money. Um, Mm. So, you know, where does the money go? You know, you have, um, you know, trillions of dollars of wealth wiped out overnight. You have, in turn, you know, relief and stimulus plans that introduce quantitative easing that create money seemingly out of thin air. Um, you have popular interest in machinations of the stock market. So, you know, ranging from dark pools to collateralized debt obligations. Um, it was also the emergence of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And so I kind of trace this moment not just to the global financial crisis, but also, you know, 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008 was almost also this moment where, um, you know, the iPhone first came out, followed quickly by, by the Android. So suddenly we were all carrying around like, pretty um, sophisticated uh, interconnected computers in our pocket. Um, uh, Facebook sort of hit the tipping point of really having enough users that it wasn't just young people. It wasn't, um, it was like even your grandma was on Facebook. Mm. Um, So it was this this moment. And and then I argue that, you know, in order to do money, you really just need something to keep track of accounts and you need a way to transmit information mm. and you need a way um, to connect with people. So to have some kind of address book. So between yeah. a, a cell phone or an advanced smartphone yeah. and something like Facebook, you're getting pretty close. So all the pieces were there 
for this kind of for for this moment of of ripe reimagining of what money is, what money could do. And you mentioned the media studies piece. Yeah. You know, people often ask me like what does media studies have to do with money? And I realized that, you know, so many of the new um, technologies that were, you know, and platforms that were emerging around consumer financial services were very much in the mode of Silicon Valley. We're very much um, in the mode of social media. So I began to really see this, like, deep entanglement between payment and and Silicon Valley more broadly defined. And I sort of determined that I would, you know, get to the bottom of it and puzzle it all out. So I imagine for much of your time working on this, whether it was cryptocurrencies or slight changes in retail investing, this was probably seen as pretty niche, um, particularly in like media studies, right? Where people are looking at social networks and journalism and all these sorts of things. Um, how, how would you express the importance of new money in these transitions? And particularly now when we're immersed in this transition. Right. So, I mean, it seems pretty niche, except for when you you realize how many times a day and how frequently we rely on on monetary infrastructures of various kinds Mm. and how um, the invisible changes that they're going through may, in fact, uh, impact us. So Mm. no matter what, I always tell scholars to or and journalists to kind of look for the payment angle, Mm. look for the payment infrastructure. You know, there's, there's been a number of times, whether it was you know, WikiLeaks or, you know, more recent issues with white nationalists Mm. in the U.S. and elsewhere um, where, you know, where various parties have been deplatformed. But Mm. it isn't really until the money gets cut off when Mm. the payment intermediaries begin to deplatform these groups. And money underlies a lot of the activity of those groups, too. Absolutely. A lot of this is just commercialization. So it's important to ask, you know, how does the money get to these groups? Mm. You know, what are the... um, the, you know what are the actual infrastructures they they that that money travels through mm. you know what are, how do those infrastructures wield infrastructural power so I actually was um, most fascinated and really perked up when it was Shopify the e-commerce um, system deplatforming some of these white nationalist groups um, because that's actually where take away the money and and you know that's where some of the um, deplatforming really has teeth, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, it was hilarious. Even sort of the late night comedians were talking about that, that when they would list the long deplatform, like all the different companies that deplatformed in the end, they were like, and Shopify, like what's right. going on there? And yet that's probably the most powerful lever, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So there, there are always these moments where these kinds of infrastructure and these kinds of much bigger structural problems and dynamics, as you say, reveal themselves. And I I think it's pretty clear that that is partly what happened and yet last week. I mean, we had this moment of visibility of some of this infrastructure, which is really interesting. Um, It seems to me there's two big technology elements to what was going on. Um, One was clearly the innovation happening in retail investing with apps like Robinhood, which is a relatively new phenomena, I think. But the other is social media. There was literally a social media component to this. Not just money as media, but this was happening on platforms. Um, So I want to start with that a little bit and get some of your thoughts on that if that's possible. Um, So what was the Wall Street Bets subreddit? Yeah, so... Reddit 
is kind of a message board of message boards. Um, so it's it's a big, it's a site filled with all of these communities called subreddits. And each of those subreddits are devoted to a particular um, topic. And Wall Street Bets was or is a place for people to come on and kind of, uh, am I allowed to use profanities on this podcast? Of course. <laughs> what? Oh, okay. Well, as they call it, shitpost about Wall Street. And Wall Street Bets is interesting because it's not your average, you know, sitting around talking about um, the market. Rather, it is full of, you know, really absurdist humor, full of memes, um, full of, you know, far more profanities and mm. offensive language than even if I'm allowed to, I probably mm. won't use on this. Mm. Um, and And I had been paying attention to it ambiently for a couple of years now. It's sort of in my wheelhouse. Mm. Um, what's funny about this is that it um, it's a place where you go to be with other people who think that the stock market is really funny and enjoy placing kind of stupid bets, like literally gambling. Mm. Um, you know, they, they use a lot of ableist language, but basically to say, let's get really stupid with our money and just go all in. Um, mm. So like quite absurdist and to me interesting because it, it you know, <laughs> in science and technology studies and in kind of social studies of finance, we've all kind of long argued that the market is an engine, not a camera, right? So, you know, there's this classical economic idea that the market is a truth claim on reality and that, you know, the economy goes up and, you know, a company does good and its stock goes up and, um, and it's all very rational mm. and it's all very reflective of something real that's out there. But, you know, those of us in my academic world, the market itself is actually an engine, right? It's not a camera taking a picture of something out in the world. Rather, it is its own performativity. Mm. It's its own um, it's its own machine that may or may not have anything to do with what you or I, who are just, you know, shopping and working at our jobs um, and living our lives, like think of mm. and experience of as the economy. Mm. And I think Wall Street bets actually, behind all of the offensive absurdism, they really get that. Um, and they're sort of, uh, you know, offering a critique of the stock market as itself fairly absurd. Um, and performative. And performative, indeed, yeah. At the same time, though, there's this rapid oscillation. Like, they like to almost jokingly talk about the fundamentals and say, you know, actually, they, as they put it, like, I like the stock. Like, I, mm. they actually sometimes are willing to make bets based on their analysis of, of what's going to happen in the world. Mm. Um, but I do think, you know, understanding this deep ambivalence and rapid oscillation between absurdism and earnestness is crucial, not just to understanding Wall Street bets, but to understanding all kinds of turns that we've seen in politics mm. um, and kind of culture more broadly. But that, that, that to some degree, complicates the narrative that this is a rising populist movement overtaking the injustices of free market capitalism, right? Like the, if this is performative and for show and was a game in many respects, is that telling us something different than this narrative that's taken hold? Well, I do think that narrative that has taken hold of like the little guy versus Wall Street has a lot of problems. <laughs> um, and, you know, first of all, you know, there is professional money, 
on both sides of this. There are actual hedge funds and institutional investors of all kinds who are also putting money into going long on on GameStop. So it's it, and we don't really know how much. We can't follow the money here exactly, but we do know that there are professional money on both sides. So the 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 populism story, I mean, and that is to say there are definitely little guys. There are definitely people who are putting hundreds of dollars into mm, this. Mm. But there are a lot of people who we would not recognize as a populist little guy. The populist figure here in many ways is Elon Musk, um, mm. who and you know is famously against hedge funds um, because hedge funds have uh, shorted Tesla and has been mm. very public about his um, disdain for hedge funds. And so, you know, you do absolutely see memes about Elon Musk where they call him, you know, Daddy Elon. Um, they talk about like for king and country in reference mm. to Elon Musk um, mm. that do look to me quite a bit like some of the memes we saw in the Donald about Donald Trump so many years ago where, you know, they called him sort of allegedly jokingly, this mix of cynicism and, uh, and absurdism and true belief, like God emperor. Um, so it's, it's, it's so what very you're saying interesting. Is Elon Musk is the next Donald Trump. Is that not to put words in your mouth? But. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then it's the same question of like, are they, do they really mean it? Are they really joking? You know, how do the kind of vectors of cynicism and true belief and absurdism shake out here? Um, the other hitch to the populist story is that, you know, everyone on Wall Street Bets is saying, you know, as they call it, like diamond hands, which means hold the stock, do not sell. Hold it so hard until your fists turn into diamonds. Hmm. Um, the other side of that is what they call poop poop hands, uh, which is where you can't hold, you get scared, you think the, the price is dipping, so you, you sell it, and then, you know, you don't really have the moxie or cojones or whatever you'd want to call it to, to ride the roller coaster and, and hold on tight. Um, so while the main discourse on the subreddit right now is diamond hands, don't sell your GameStop, keep it going, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Many of the people um, who are savvy retail investors who've been around this for a long time, who have put quite a bit of money into GameStop are not actually willing to lose hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars for the sake of diamond hands, for the sake of proving um, that they they have the cojones to play this game of chicken um, mm. against hedge funds. And many of them have, in fact, sold out, um, sold their stock. They're probably not making memes about it. In fact, I haven't seen many memes about it. Um, but they have turned the GameStop stock worth, quote unquote, X amount of money into actual money. <laughs> um, whereas others who I think maybe sit on the side of true belief, um, maybe are less savvy, um, maybe just don't, like are so absurdist and cynical that they don't care if they lose money, mm. are still holding on. And eventually, I can't see an end strategy where many of those users who continue to hold and hold and hold mm. don't wind up losing their investment. So are they the people who are going to get hurt in this? Yes, yes. So there are absolutely going to be people who bought at the top of, of the market for GameStop, who believe the hype of hold, 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 and who are only going to be able to sell after their position has totally collapsed and when the stock is worth almost nothing again. You know, I come to this in part through my research in the Bitcoin community and crypto community mm. more broadly. And in, in Bitcoin, we have a similar dynamic where, that where we talk, the, you know, Bitcoiners talk about hodling. Um, so 
it's a misspelling of the word hold. So you're meant to hodl, 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 and hodl your Bitcoin. Don't sell, don't sell, don't sell. And some people who are preaching hodling are absolutely selling. Um, you know, many people, because they are trying to get out at the top of the market. Right. If if they weren't, then it wouldn't be fluctuating the way it does radically. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. Um, so yes, they are able to screw some hedge funds, so to speak. Um, but I don't see any way for there not to be some ordinary Joes who wind up getting hurt by this. Um, I, I haven't seen a clearly articulated exit strategy. Mm-hmm. So this connection to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin sort of brings up the potential democratizing elements of this or empowering elements of this. And uh, five or so years ago, I wrote an article about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies where I kind of made the argument that either, this could be totally wrong, but I just want to try it on you. Either, <laughs> yeah. either, this technology is as fundamentally empowering as proponents are making it out to be, in which case it undermines the very thing that makes nation states the strongest, which is their control over currency. And states are pretty powerful. So they are probably going to push back very aggressively against this technology. Or it's actually not as powerful as the people promoting it are, it's what you're called. It's generally just a pump and dump scheme to game the market and investment. Um, in which case, the states are just going to kind of let it emerge and simmer and aren't going to use their big sticks against it. Is what we're seeing now kind of an example of the latter? That this this, this isn't overturning capitalism or the state. This is just a sort of niche market thing that is being controlled by the same kind of interests who generally control investments. Um, I actually think, I actually think it's a third thing. I don't think we're seeing um, the emergence of some radical democratization of finance, where suddenly, you know, this it's it's a, a vast army of you know this distributed um, ad hoc hedge fund mm-hmm. essentially to rival entrenched actors. Um, nor do I necessarily. I I don't think we're going to see any major systemic market meltdowns from this as, um, mm. uh, anytime soon. Um, but I do think that I think that a better comparison is actually to the internet more broadly. Mm. So, you know, in the early days, in the nineties, there was a lot of talk about, um, how the cyberspace was going to leave behind the meat space and it's, it's petty rules and petty governments. Um, and we were all going to be homesteading on the electronic frontier and living in this, you know, radically new, um, you know, imagined world that, that was, you know, virtual world. Um, and, and to some extent it's true that the internet has challenged many of the laws, um, that terrestrial (laughs) governments put in place. Um, but instead, you know, we didn't, we didn't actually, get or we haven't as yet gotten the revolution that is as you know dramatic as may have been promised or envisioned mm-hmm. in the 90s. Instead, what we got was a bunch of platforms who uh, carved up the internet um, mm-hmm. and you know definitely made it far from this kind of libertarian utopia that it once was um, or once was envisioned to be. Um, but our lives have radically been reshaped by the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, Facebook is really important. Um, it 
it is an important intermediary that in some ways rivals state power, um, but it also is the place where we go to communicate with our grandma. You know, It's a place where we go to sell things. It's a place where we go for news, for everything. Um, so I think that you know, democratization of finance is absolutely here to stay and that we will see finance change in the way that almost all other industries have changed as a result of um, you know, the internet facilitating new actors. Um, I don't think, again, that it's necessarily this radical populist story about the little guy. I think it's maybe a new way for MBA grads um, to act uh, on the stock market, mm -hmm. you know, a new way for the same kinds of people who've always been players um, to enter into it maybe disrupting the hierarchies inside of Wall Street firms more than anything else. Um, so I actually, I definitely do think that, that Wall Street is going to change as a result of this, but I don't think it's an easy populist story. Hmm. Um, or even democratizing? I mean, if this is just an up end, an innovation within the financial services sector, right. then that's not really democratizing either, is it? Yeah. I mean, I think a, the question there is actually a question of platforms. So, you know, this is something I think quite a bit about with payment systems, but also, you know, because I'm in media studies, we think about the governance and power of platforms constantly. Mm. So, you know, platforms fundamentally moderate. Um, they fund what that's like definitionally what they do. They decide how information and activity flows mm. through them. Um, they're far from these, you know, neutral dumb pipes or dumb channels. Yep. Um, so, and, and Robinhood is fundamentally a platform. You know, there's been a lot of conspiracy theories um, that have emerged since they have kind of stopped allowing certain kinds of trades on their platform in the wake of all of this. Um, but, but I do think that they have been... Um, largely constrained. I do think that the main reason why they they stopped allowing people to uh, buy GameStop is because they were constrained by a variety of different market mechanisms, like their own credit, um, their own ability to clear the trades that were being placed. Um, and I think what that reveals, that kind of infrastructural inversion, is that, you know, um, we have to simultaneously hold platforms accountable because um, platforms will fundamentally shape whether or not this is a democratizing moment or what the nature of that democratizing moment is. But we also have to stop. We have to stop making these like sweeping generalizations about platforms as though the their moderation decisions were on-off switches. Um, but to really intensely study the underlying infrastructure um, that. That pr that produces uh, platform decision making. Mm. So I think that that all of the work that has been done over the last decade or so to understand platforms now has to be applied to platforms like Robinhood mm. um, and to see like if there is something different about money and if so, what is it? Is there more of a do they owe us more of a fiduciary role? But how can we understand the mechanisms by which they are in fact constrained? Mm. I mean, that segues perfectly to what I want to ask you about platforms. I mean, the analogy to the internet is important, I think. And you could argue that the emergence of platforms as an infrastructure, and particularly as a set of incentives, um, is part of what uh, maybe pushed back against the democratizing nature of our mm -hmm. previous internet infrastructure. Um, and so I guess what can we learn from that that – 
the platformatization, platformatization of the internet is what led to it being less democratic mm -hmm. and empowering. So what can we learn from that to apply to these new set of platforms that are going to come very fast, right? They're going to Robin is not the first here, or not the last, and they're going to be barreling down. So here's the thing about Robinhood. Is it is, like every other platform, every other startup in the Valley, you know, it is funded by VCs. It has an eventual data play, like, oh, it's free to use, it's free to our users because we are going to figure out how to monetize this data somehow eventually. Mm. Um, but I suspect that its real exit plan was never actually to sustainably monetize that data, mm. but instead was preparing for an eventual um, acquisition, you know, um, by, by, a, by big a bank, bank or yeah. the like. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that it, in, in, you know, the tech industry, it seems like we have no real way to imagine long-term business that actually serves the consumers that isn't acquisition mm. or winner takes all in the, the way of Facebook, yeah. where you just become so entrenched that, that you know, yeah, you're a natural monopoly. even yeah. if you're not yeah. making any money, even if you're largely still, mm. you know, moving and, you know, operating in what, what's called growth mode, mm. you know, just trying to get to scale, get to scale, get to scale and, and profits come later. Um, and in many cases, disrupting businesses that actually do make a profit. So this doesn't actually look very much like what I was taught capitalism is. <laughs> so as the tech industry becomes ever more imperial and ever more turning its uh, project to more and more parts of, of life and more and more parts of, of the economy, how can we hold them accountable to make businesses that actually try to serve the users, not just get to scale and exit somehow. Mm. And I think that's a really big and um, unanswerable question, but is mm. kind of the key question yeah. of the moment. And I, I suppose if we want to change some of those incentives, um, part of what we might want to do is not leave this space entirely unregulated as we did the previous platform moment. Um, but it strikes me one of the really hard parts of regulating this sector is going to be figuring out how to protect these retail investors and the banking infrastructure and the integrity of the financial sector um, while not impeding the ability of the retail investors and these new platforms to emerge. Do you, do you think there's a set of regulatory approaches that can help ease that transition? Yeah, I honestly can't say that that I know that there are, but I think that that's a really good agenda, um, you know, for policy scholars to like really think about. And that's definitely a conversation I would be interested um, in being part of. Um, I do think that some of the messaging, the, the political messaging in response has been um, really interesting. So, you know, if Notably, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been sort of a supporter. She seems to sort of get it. Um, but, you know, when Elizabeth Warren popped up and said something like, you know, we need to talk about regulating this space because, you know, this kind of, of activity, like including both the, the way that Robinhood treated its users, but also um, the way that the potentially like swarming behavior that these retail investors mm. caused um, doesn't actually help GameStop. It doesn't make for an efficient market. It doesn't, um, 
you know, it, it's that isn't really good either. It was kind of the like grown up approach from what I can tell. Well, it was also from her consumer protection background, right? Absolutely. She's like, how do we protect yeah. these people from making mistakes in a system? Right. Uh, uh, right. I mean, in somewhat paternalistic way. Whereas yes. AOC is all about Im- democratic empowerment. And this is, yeah. so it, it's interesting to watch the progressive world struggle Split. with this topic. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I do think, you know, important important thing that is worth teasing out here too is the role, and, you know, I almost hate myself for saying <laughs> this, but the role that hedge funds actually play in an efficient market. Like if we're going to say that there's such a thing as a market and we're going to allow some people um, to, you know, invest money and we're going to put all of our retirement funds in it and we're going to play all these casino games, um, you know, hedge funds do play a role. Like they're the folks that say this stock is overvalued, right? This thing is hype. Um, and like, I hope if, if any Wall Street bets people listen to this, they may actually get mad at me for kind of pulling in the Elon Musk of it all again. Um, but Tesla, if if we pretend that the market is in fact kind of a camera that's meant to um, take a picture of real events, Elon Musk is a very erratic personality. <laughs> and maybe you want a bit of hedging against the exuberance attached to his stock, right? Maybe, yeah. yes. You know, um, you know, maybe it's, it's okay to say that is overvalued mm-hmm. and that the, and like maybe a check on some of the just exuberant growth, 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 growth to the moon as Bitcoiners and also Wall Street Bets people would say, you know, um, just it, it, it's <laughs> could we imagine this is kind of ridiculous, but could we imagine like um, some alliance between like hedge funds and something like the degrowth movement, <laughs> which seeks to, um, you know, put a check on on. Uh, uh, on economic growth or like an ideology of economic growth for reasons of um, of you know ultimately environmental <laughs> avoiding environmental catastrophe. I mean that's no, that's, that's a political ridiculous. alliance that is. Uh, <laughs> but that's <laughs> stranger bedfellows have been made in this very controversy. <laughs> so you never know. I think you know there's is a moment where we have this miasma of strange bedfellows and all kinds of new allegiances are going to emerge. Mm. Um, Probably not that one, but as a provocation, I think it's pretty interesting. So do you think that's what might make this a real turning point? Um, Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just, I have an inner hedge fund in me where I'm always the one being like, is it really going to change that much? Probably not. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it, we will, we're going to see change in this space. Um, and we're going to see, you know, Wall Street is, it has changes coming for it. Um, but they probably won't be as exciting uh, or as exciting in, in a good way <laughs> as, uh, as some people some people hope. I don't know. I'm not a good prognosticator. I'm more of a historian and an, an analyst of, of what's going on. Well, you, I tell you, you provided some great perspective on what we've all been watching unfold over the past week. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. That was my conversation with Lana Swartz. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. 
Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.